Hello and welcome to Coffee Meet with Algamy Consulting, with me, your host, Chris New. Today's podcast is the second in our four series of podcasts titled Pathway to Freedom. As always, we aim to provide insight from key players of the wealth and asset management industry, what it means to run and operate an investment management business as the industry looks to move forward from cautious optimism and navigate a pathway to freedom to address the dynamic business, environmental, societal and regulatory changes and opportunities. Today's topic has the wave of changes past its peak in the investment industry. Some players in the investment management industry claim that besides more M&A, the renewed trend towards outsourcing of operations, the ongoing launch of ETFs and other new products and share classes, the move towards wealth management, we may experience a period of more modest changes in the years to come. Uh, to discuss this topic, we're very lucky to be joined over Zoom by Emanuele Ravano. Good morning, Good morning, Chris. Emmanuel Rivano, Chairman of Uni Global CCAV Funds, Unigestion, a former partner at PIMCO and a Managing Director and Head of Fixed Income at Credit Suisse. Also with me today is Global Finance Correspondent of the Financial Times and author of a fascinating new book, Trillions, How a Band Renegades Invented and Changed Finance Forever. It's Robin Wigglesworth. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. Before we get into the podcast, maybe you could um, both give us your sort of two-minute elevator pitch on um, how you got into the industry. Manuel, should we get you first? I was for 15 years at Credit Suisse. The highlight of that was the uh, creation of the euro. I was in charge of uh, putting together all the local currency funds that we had across Europe. Then I moved to PIMCO in 2001, which was at the time a small outfit with 200 billion and got to 2 trillion in 11 years. Largely, as we will discuss today, as the advent of mutual funds and the growth of that sector in active fixed income management. Now I'm at Unigestion, chairman of the CCAF, i.e. the Uniglobal, not of Unigestion itself, and enjoying uh, the changes in the industry. That's a fascinating uh, career and uh, some very good timing in that career, especially joining PIMCO at that point. You obviously have a good insight into what lies ahead. Robin, your journey, how did you get into uh, financial journalism and what are you particularly passionate about in global finance? Yes, I, I ended up in finance as it were purely by chance. I studied international relations and politics and, and history, a bit of journalism. And my role in the industry is more as a voyeur rather than a participant. I worked in the Middle East covering Islamic finance for a little bit. That was my first okay. job in, in financial journalism. Then joined Bloomberg as an economics correspondent and then went to the FT as a Middle East correspondent and basically stayed with the FT ever since and have for the past of eight, nine years done finance exclusively. So mostly markets and investing, but interpreting that fairly liberally. And I just think it's a fascinating industry to cover anyway. I think the evolution, and it's a verging enormous revolution that's happening in asset management, I think is one of the more fascinating trends. It's an industry that to a certain extent has used technology, but has in its basic form not evolved much for a century. Excellent. Thank you very much for those intros. I think that gives us um, some context. For- if you are familiar with these podcasts, um, I do have a little bit of a fun teaser question. Obviously, we're very excited to have a uh, sort of showbiz literary celebrity on the podcast today, as Robin is author of Trillions, which to me is ultimately a great people story. I and mean, I encourage you to read it. It's based about a cast of characters in Wall Street. Not sure if you're familiar with the, the baseball film Moneyball, um, which is all about sort of Brad Pitt playing this character called Billy Bean. And he gets a Yale economics graduate who brings statistical research and analysis to spot the value in sort of unfashionable players. And that's very much to me how their story evolved 
around passive investing and breaking down some of those myths. For me, the question is, what is your favourite finance film or Wall Street film? Without further ado, before we discuss what the current state of the market is in terms of active versus passive or even what the future trends could be, I guess we need to understand where we have come from. And Robin, clearly your best place to give us that hopefully whistle-stop tour of your book, essentially. How have we got to a place where, in America particularly, passive is the dominant form in equities. 100 years of investment history in two minutes. Fundamentally, I think sitting here today, I think people forget or would be surprised at how unquantitative and, if you were being kind of artisanal, investment used to be. This was not a data-driven industry. It was an industry that had numbers, but it was still fundamentally based on human gut instinct. People occasionally started doubting that this was actually working out that well for the actual investor at periods through times like the South Sea bubble or the first investment trust that went bust in the panic of 1907. After the Great Depression, for example, Fred Schwed wrote a book saying, we're the customer's yachts. But it wasn't until the emergence of genuine computers that could be used by some academics and a few heretical people in the finance industry that could actually both collect the data and systematize it and calculate how well, first of all, equities and bonds did in the long run and how well the average active manager did compared to them. That didn't happen until the 1960s. This is, of course, the pre-internet days, and humans are really good at filtering out information that we don't like. Mm. And the finance industry did not like the conclusions that were coming out from academia in the 60s and 70s that were just unambiguously 100% clear that professional investors did a, at best, mediocre job, and in reality, a pretty awful job in the long run. Ever since then, the history of investing has been essentially attempts to grapple with that, so we've seen an ongoing shift as more and more people, either first institutions and pension plans, realized this and started adopting index funds. More recently, retail investors, just over the past 20 years or so, have embraced that as well. And how the investment industry is trying to harness some of these newer techniques, whether it's of mining alternative data, more quantitative techniques, uh, better execution, to essentially address the central problem of performance that the average active manager has to underperform the market after their costs are subtracted. You know, that the persistence of returns is also pretty abysmal. That you might have a fund manager that is top decile one year, two year, five years, but statistically in most major asset classes, less than 30% of active managers can outperform their benchmarks over a 10 year period. So yep. I think everybody's engaging in a war, almost an escalation of trying to get better at everything all time. There's this constant focus on getting better and better and more and more efficient. Uh, and I think that's going to play out in very interesting ways over the next 10, 20 years. Okay, so this is about, a, as you say, efficiency for those who've studied their finance or been to business school, efficient uh, market hypothesis. And I think a lot of what your book touches on is the characters that we're familiar with and brings those to light. This is using quantitative um, finance to break the myths of the asset management industry. And really, I guess we're you're uniquely positioned, at least having lived through that over the, the last 30 odd years. Does that reflect what you saw evolving in terms of the pathway to where we are? I come from a fixed income perspective. If I look at that area, you came from a period where literally people were clipping coupons. So they held bonds to maturity and they were clipping coupons in between. Then rates went up and Bill Gross and PIMCO, amongst others, developed the idea of total return, which meant that you were managing not only the coupon, but also the duration, the type of assets you had. 
and you were trying really to ride the bull market in bonds that happened from the 80s to 2020. And I think that from that perspective, active fixed income management has been accepted as the bulk of the way to do things. Now, more recently, you've had development of passive fixed income, which is more complicated because you are indexing to the debt rather than to equity. You're buying more of companies that are more indebted. So there's a risk there. You end up with the wrong result, i.e. having more of your weight in sectors that are more indebted. My sense is generally that you have to relate the approach to the investment environment. In equities, in a bull market, passive, low cost makes sense. Maybe in other periods, it might not be as relevant. The next 10 years might be quite different from the last 10 years. I guess from a historical perspective, the environment has been conducive to particularly equities having a a passive quantitative approach to reduce costs. But for fixed income, there's a, a sort of passionate discussion about why active management works due to the inefficiencies and the fact that 90% of the funds beat the benchmark. So what we read about in trillions, as you've said, doesn't apply to fixed income. So there, there is the not all markets are the same. Correct. And I, I think that the point is definitely that in fixed income, you would be indexing to the debt rather than the growth of companies. It's a different proposition. So when you say that in indexing to the debt in terms of you have to take account of the, the balance sheet in terms of the indebtedness. I'll give you an example. If you look at Europe as a sum of countries, countries like Italy and Spain and Greece, which have issued more debt, would normally be indexed at a higher level than countries like Germany, Holland and France, which have got lower debt. So the issue of indexing in fixed income can lead to what you don't want, similar in corporate market. Exactly. We've discussed that fixed income as a clear case for active management. <laughs> We're moving on to the current state of the market. Is this as a global finance discussion, Robin? Is this just an American revolution? Very much all the characters in your book, American, whether they be academics or within Wall Street itself or the, the wider American investment community. When I look at the figures for Europe, even the UK, which I guess is the most anglicised of those markets, 26% was the last figures I could find, and then even lower for Germany. So can we see that state of the market changing in Europe, or is this just an American story? Well, just to take on the fixed income side, I do agree with Emanuele that fixed income indices are a very different beast, and there are all sorts of common sense issues with building financial products on them. But just because they're different doesn't mean the conclusion is different. Sadly, we can see that the average active fixed income manager also does a very bad job in the long run. That includes the big mainstream funds that we know, like PIMCO's Total Return Fund, one of the best performing funds in the history of the world for a long time, then basically he's been dreadful ever since. The the asset classes change, but the maths don't. For every winner, there has to be a loser. On how far it's gone, clearly the US is more advanced than this. But I think it has less to do with where the revolution started. It has all to do with where distribution happens and distribution channels. So where there are big institutions, for example, in Europe, let's say Northern Europe, large majority of the big pension plans, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, for example, is entirely passive. The more sophisticated pools of capital are passive. But where we are primarily retail markets and the retail distribution happens through banks, unsurprisingly, banks like to stuff clients into their expensive, poorly performing mutual funds. So the United States has a very different distribution model, which is why quite a lot of financial advisors, which are hugely important there, do push people increasingly into passive funds as, as they have also internalized this rock hard data 
that you know stretches back a century in Europe, where people tend to go to their local bank branch and ask, look, I need a fund. What should I invest in? They will get put into that bank's or a local asset manager's active fund. There is no incentive at all to put people into passive funds because they often don't come with any sales commission. That is why, for example, Europe lags behind and the UK is halfway in between those. And in Asia, there are cultural issues around gambling. It's more fun, whether you're a billionaire with a private banking account or a family office or an individual saving, there's been a bit more of a risk-taking attitude than what we see in Europe. So there people gravitate more towards individual stocks anyway. Technology is an enormous leveler of this. And inevitably, as we see the bank distribution models come under pressure from upstarts that we've already seen happen in the US is almost inevitably going to happen Maybe not to the same extent, but it is going to happen in Europe. I think we're going to see that change quite dramatically. That we can already see people trying to buy funds in, for example, ETF formats, because you can buy them for free on most stock market platforms. This is definitely why it's been slower in Europe, but I'm skeptical that it's going to stay quite so stayed for the foreseeable future. I think, broadly speaking, across the world, we can see the trend lines and they are towards more money gushing into passive products. So as someone who's chairing a, a firm in, in that industry, in terms of di- the distribution sort of discussion we had there and the, the incentivization of, I guess, customers and the fees they take, is that something that resonates with you? No, I, I would say commenting on the distribution channels and the comments that Robin made, I think that it's true that Europe has a setup in terms of distribution that is different, which leads to a slower move towards passive and towards low-cost products. And that, you know that will happen in time. I think two things will speed up the process. One will be more sideways markets will force people to find new solutions. We've been in a bull market globally. The returns to European investors from moving to the US have been positive. Therefore, the current solutions are the accepted norm. If that changes, if markets start to perform in a more volatile way, I think investors will look for new solutions. But at the moment, there isn't that much of an incentive. And I think there is a generational issue. I think there's The baby boomers in Europe have been more comfortable with banking relationships. The Generation Z, X, millennials are looking at platforms and investments via direct instruments. And I think that will lead to a great acceptance of ETF. Now, I do think public investments have been our focus so far, but companies like Unigestion, for instance, has developed a very big private equity activity because the real opportunities are in that area. In Europe, with rates at zero, Small, medium-sized companies are benefiting from the lowest cost of funding in a generation or maybe more generations, and that provides great opportunities away from, in fact, passive or active. Every asset manager is looking to private markets in this search for alpha or search for return. If the inflationary environment and the end sort of QE for some economies means that we no longer have these historically low rates, does this mean the additional cost and burden an organizational change that is required to enter private markets, does this no longer become viable? As we return, dare I say, to a normal sort of rate environment, the private markets then become, suddenly you realize where the risk is or the lack of transparency, all the, all the original reasons people didn't go into private markets and they were left to the specialists. My sense, Chris, is that uh, we're in a period of financial repression where the central banks have started to control yield curves and uh, have accepted or have introduced the idea of large negative real yields. And whilst those might come down in time, I doubt that we'll be able to go to positive real yields because the amount of debt outstanding is so big. So that suggests that 
borrowers maybe are an advantage for the time being, and therefore private equity structures might continue to do well, even though activity might not always be as good as we've had in the last year. The other point I would make is that there's certainly with blockchain and the new digital ledger technology, the opportunity to offer these type of instruments to a broader set. And the asset managers have not really done that so far. And the regulators are maybe behind the curve also. But at some point, those technologies should allow asset managers to offer this opportunity set to a broader group. One of the things that strikes me about passive investing and this very quantitative approach is, does it fundamentally change the organization and the culture of asset managers in the sense that if you're looking to reduce costs, that engagement element at risk of being worn away and it becomes even more um, faceless, heartless, and it's just all about the numbers. And it's not about the real economy underneath because the whole theory behind this is, I think in your book, you said a monkey throwing darts at, at the stock market could get the same returns as someone who's actively managing it, but actually isn't there more about that engagement with real companies and the, the sort of capitalist model? I'll put that challenge to you, Robin. What what do you make of the change in culture and organisation? I think the changes are enormous. I understand that for people in the investment industry or finance in general, it can feel like a heartless change, but it's just reality. Every industry is becoming more quantitative and more technology driven. And that is this inescapable. You can stand like Canute in front of the tires and keep it away, but it's not going to work. And one of the things I've always quite liked about the finance industry is that it is at its heart, very meritocratic and numbers driven. They don't care who you are, what you look like or where you come from, as long as you perform and make money and do your job well. And I think the realization in the investment industry is that a lot of stuff that people got paid and sometimes got paid exceptionally well for was essentially harnessing some sort of systematic risk overtly or, or indirectly or they didn't even know about. But then we realized also later on that actually quite a lot of people would deliver value or produce what looked like alpha by just tilting towards value stocks or small cap. So you trim that off. And you trim everything that is essentially just some sort of systematic risk that you're harnessing. For example, PIMCO would systematically, you'd have to do it in an artisanal way, but a new issue premium that most fixed income securities that when they come out with a slight new issue premium, you can do this with IPOs as well. IPOs on average have a first day pop because you have to compensate people for the risk of investing in a new company. So you systematize all that and you cut away everything that is essentially some form of beta in drag. And I think what a lot of institutional investors definitely have realized, and maybe retail will realize over many years as well, is that quite a lot of the stuff that we paid portfolio managers and hedge fund managers to do over the past 20, 30, 50, 100 years is essentially some form of beta. So I think the industry is going to get way harder, but the comp for the remainders, the people that can adapt to this, is going to be dramatically higher because they can plausibly have a far stronger claim, say, look, I have unambiguously delivering uncorrelated alpha. And that is going to be absolutely worth its weight in gold in this environment that, as Manuela says, is going to be a low return environment. Because although I completely agree that beta, the returns from beta in almost every market has been phenomenal for the past couple of decades, and that is almost mathematically going to be impossible to maintain, I'm not sure that active is going to be the beneficiary. I think in an environment of low returns, you control what you can, and that is cost. And the asset management industry still has a lot of margin that can come out of it. So I think institutional investors are going to push that lower and lower and lower. And as Emanuela says, go for returns and pay up for what they think is maybe alpha in private markets. 
And that is going to be a big trend. So this, the barbelling of the investment industry has been talked about for a long time, but I think it's happening even faster and more dramatically than even some of the proponents would have said when they first started talking about this, between expensive private markets, illiquid strategies on one hand, and very liquid beta returns on the other. The cost on that one is going to come way down, but it's going to grow. And the cost on that side is going to stay high, but people are just you know, essentially now spraying and praying money at private capital and hoping that this will get them out of the return hole that most institutional investors are going to find themselves in over the next generation, really. It's quite a stark reality, is probably how that sounds, but it's a clear vision of that future, which I guess, um, is that something you concur with? Emanuele, how do you think Gen Z are going to react to this new culture? There's definitely a sense that the asset management industry is an industry of fat cats that have lived on excessive margins relative to the performance uh, that they've delivered and the services that they've offered. Clearly, something has to change. It is changing because the flow into low-margin, low-fee products is increasing. And I agree with Robin that ultimately uh, the cost of investing money has to come down, particularly in the periods of low returns. I-, I would differentiate a little bit my answer in two areas. You know, Principally, the fact that I do think that as more money moves into passive, opportunities will be there in active management, And I think that we can't forget that we are at a pretty advanced point in a bull market where just, if you use an analogy, going at top speed seems to be the right strategy. You want to have top speed, you're not too worried about the turns or the surface of the road. I think that if you go ahead, maybe top speed might not be the only criteria necessary. You might handling in turns or greater suspensions to adjust for the volatility. I do think that investors need to take into account not only of fees, but also what sort of characteristics do they want for the next 10 years? And I think the next 10 years will be different. The generation thing is very similar. I don't think that Generation Z and millennials want to buy something that is very complex, that is not transparent, and that offers something that they can buy somewhere else at a cheaper price. And finally, I think that the industry is trying to deal with its image of you know not being relevant, but I'm not sure that sustainability is important, but giving financing in a more flexible, uh, imaginative, technologically advanced way should be part of the mix. If we take that forward, looking to the future now, if we're talking about one of the other challenges facing asset management industry is the relevance and solution-based outcomes, whether that's how the average retail investor is looking for liability-driven lifetime events, multi-asset products, all these things which are different to the traditional model and different to just buying the S&P 500 tracker, how does that sort of fit into the passive world? So where do you see solutions fitting into that future in the next 10 years? The problem with solution is a lot of the uh, solution type products that were launched over the last 10 years have not done well uh, relative to a simple low cost index approach. Mm. Delivered uh, returns that were often below benchmark at at fees that were quite large. So I, I think my sense of solution is to widen a little bit the asset base, as we discussed earlier, the idea of offering ways to participate in private equity investments via blockchain technology, the idea of offering something to protect against an inflation environment might be a way to address this, but also very simply to offer products that are not just passive without any accountability for sustainability and other issues. So solution does not necessarily only mean a return, but 
you know, what way you're achieving that return. And the generation that is coming up is much more ready to sacrifice some return for some objectives that go beyond just making an extra percent. That brings me nicely back to ESG, which ultimately is an activist strategy. If, if you go to Aviva or Hermes, any of these leading asset managers who have a history of engaging with boards directly and pushing for change, how does that work in a, a passive strategy where it doesn't necessarily take account of that? I don't want to come off as too much of a tech evangelist here, but again, technology, when it comes to some of the solutions and customization and, and individual beliefs in what investment management might do for you as a consumer, the future is going to be something called the direct indexing. This is something that essentially what institutions have been able to do to give tailored mandates to big asset managers. So if you're a you know, Chinese sovereign wealth fund, you can tell PIMCO or BlackRock or, or Capital that I want X, Y, Z, or I don't want these companies or whatever. And that is now being available through some direct indexing for some wealthy people through some select asset managers for a while, but technology has made that radically easier to offer to far more consumers. So we've seen Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan Stanley, BlackRock, Vanguard, and Franklin Templeton all buy direct indexing competitors or technology solutions. This is clearly something they see as maybe the indexing 3.0. And this is essentially the idea that maybe you start off with a, an S&P 500 index fund, but you don't actually put it in a fund structure. First of all, you can harvest tax losses far more just systematically, let's say in the US, but you can also say, well, look, I happen to work at Facebook and I don't want to have double economic exposure to Facebook. So I want to take S&P X Facebook, essentially. Or yeah. maybe you happen to think that maybe you're parents died from smoking. You think tobacco is evil, so you can take out all the tobacco companies. So you can just customize these indices in any way you want. I think the danger there is also, again, that we're essentially giving people new cool tools to make the same dumb mistakes that humans have through history, in that it will blur the line to an active and passive even more than it already has. And the fundamental triumph of passive was that it was cheap and it was broad and diversified. Obviously, there is a point where there are diminishing returns for that diversification and fixed income is a classic case of that. But I do worry that this could end up you know, hurting a few people that take it too far. On ESG and the, the governance side of things, I have to admit, I'm immensely cynical about this. And yeah. this feels like a Hail Mary from an investment industry that has been unable to perform to the level where they would like compared to the fees that they charge. So they're wrapping stuff up in green marketing and saying, obviously, we can't beat the index, but you can not beat the index and feel good about saving the world. But first of all, I just think that there is elements of mis-selling going on here, that people are selling ESG investing as a way of not just you can do well and still do as well as the market, but actually beat the market because these are hot, sexy industries. So I think that has potential major pitfalls, as some big asset managers are discovering now. And I also think it's unfair to lump the investment industry with this gargantuan responsibility to change the world. I, I have a huge actual appreciation for what the investment industry has done for the modern world. Channeling savings to productive investments is one of the most important roles you can have in a capitalist society. And it's done generally that job pretty well. But the idea that asset managers should have to take responsibility for you know, board representation, social issues, climate change. I just think these are societal issues that we all need to address and through elected politicians, not through a BlackRock or Vanguard saying company X needs to get a little bit greener or completely arbitrary 
unrigorous ratings of the sustainability of Tesla versus Volkswagen. And I worry about that it could, in the long run, erode the credibility of the investment industry as a whole, at the same time distracting from the very real issues we need to address on climate change and social issues, for example, or governance. I would say that sort of differs from a lot of the guests on these podcasts. Nobody wants to talk against this. Asset owners want you to talk about it. Investors want to talk about it. In practice, I think we're all, it's a classic policy of action where we must do something. A is something, well, let's do A. And doesn't really necessarily follow that A is the right thing. It's just something to do. So yes, this is something that we all need to address. But essentially, we are, as Larry Fink recently said, engaging in this massive regulatory arbitrage where dirty assets, especially, are migrating from public markets, where they're being systematically undervalued by investors being afraid of holding them, to private hands, who will reap uneconomic surplus gains purely because they are ESG-insensitive investors. Does that help the world? Nothing. Zero. Zilch. It's just like shuffling one oil field from one pair of hands to the other pair of hands. It does nothing for the world. It just makes some pension investors feel a little bit better until they realize that they have, over the past 10, 20 years, cost themselves enormous returns in the process. We're going to see the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, the State Streets of the world are coming under relentless pressure to do even more. And I think the danger is less that they essentially are passive owners. It's more the danger that they become overly active owners and take stances that are politically sensitive on a host of very sensitive public policy issues, like gun control. So for example, whenever there's a mass shooting in the US, the index fund providers come under massive pressure because obviously they are the biggest owners of almost every gun stock. They say, look, it's in the index, we can't do anything about it. But they will say, we'll talk to them about responsible gun salesmanship. And that's fine. And I don't like guns. I'd like Vanguard to take over some of these companies and shut them down. But fundamentally, guns are legal in the United States. Should private companies with private shareholders be dictating matters of massively sensitive public policy to other private companies? I don't think so. And that goes for whether it's ESG or gun control or a whole host of issues. I don't feel comfortable with the idea that BlackRock and Vanguard could potentially control half the vote of most major companies in the US and the world in our lifetimes, given the current trend lines. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think those companies particularly feel comfortable with that power either. Fundamentally, that is an issue that they're not going to be able to duck in the coming decade or two, because this is not going away. The, the sort of paradox that it is anti-democratic, I think, is one that's, that's very well made. I think we're just we're coming to the end of our, our time here. I think, Emmanuel, we could come back to you and just as a chairman of an active manager, if you're a COO, senior manager, or even someone just starting out in your firm, what changes can they expect to say over the five to 10 years to them at in their organization. I think that clearly the asset management industry has to change. The margins are going to compress. My sense is I would look at three things. I would look at the future investment environment. The discussion about passive and active now is relevant, but we also have to consider that we are at a pretty advanced point in the bull market and the next five, 10 years might be very different. We might have lower returns from a high starting point and passive might not be sufficient to produce the returns you need. And I think that in that environment, active ETFs might make more sense rather than passive. In fixed income, if there is a period of financial repression where real yields are negative, maybe you offer clients products that capitalize on borrowing a negative real yields and investing in positive real yields by companies that benefit from inflation. 
The second point I would make is also that we talked a lot about passive versus active. And active is always, we mean active as just public equities. But as I've mentioned before, I think that the theme that has been raised by the Robin Hooders and others in the last year is that people want to see finance being democratized. And I think blockchain technology, digital ledger technology, allows for greater participation in small and mid-sized companies, which are crucial for employment, which are crucial for new ideas, and which should not be the domain of just a minority of wealthy investors. And I think finally, it's uh, just a question of keeping a close tab on uh, generational issues. One of my favorite books is The Fourth Turning. And I think that raises an important issue. The millennials and Generation Z will look at current distribution channels and not like it. We'll look at complex solutions and not like them. They want transparency. They want ready access. And I think the industry has to take into account of an important trend over 10 years. Thank you. I think that's three excellent points and is a nice way to bring a conclusion to that discussion, which I think has been robust and fascinating. Thank you both for that. But I'm not going to let you get away without telling me what your favourite finance film is and why? My favorite recently has been Margin Call. Yeah. Just because uh, it's always fascinating how detached sometimes the uh, top level people are from the reality of things. It's uh, entertaining, but also quite revealing of some of the realities of these uh, places where the last guy in sometimes is closer to what's going on than the first guy that has been at the top for 20 years. For me, having worked on being on an equity desk at the time, uh, that all went through. It gave me the best sense of what it actually felt like. So uh, I agree that it's, it was a great movie. Robin, well, you can't have Margin Call, so uh, you think of something else. <laughs> margin Call is my favourite. For, for I haven't worked in finance. It's a human portrayal of the, of the characters. And I think it's quite nice that actually there's very little finance about it. The finance is the setting for some human drama. But I guess since you guys have both chosen Margin Call, I'm just going to have to be with what the Americans call the OG, the original gangster movie of finance movies, which is Trading Place, which I still think is a lot of fun. And the OJ trading at the end is still a really accurate portrayal of what the pits were like. And Both, thank you very much. Uh, I've really enjoyed this discussion. This has been uh, genuinely insightful. So uh, thank you very much. And I hope you enjoyed your time on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for leading the discussion. Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's been lots of fun. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. And what has, I hope you agree, an enlightening conversation from two thought leaders in the WAM industry and will hopefully give you some clarity on what changes are coming in the years ahead. We look forward to grabbing another cup of coffee with Algamy Consulting and you're all in the next in our series of podcasts on the theme of pathway to freedom in the wealth and asset management industry. If you want to discuss this podcast further with us, have any questions, or even like to take part in our series Pathway to Freedom, please get in touch with us through inquiries at algamy-consulting.com or via LinkedIn, Algamy Consulting. Thank you and goodbye.